Our scripture this morning will be from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh and my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent the sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but you, Lord, will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you this morning. Um, Let me pray, and then we'll go ahead and start talking about the psalm. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you. We thank you, God. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your truth, God. We thank you for how you are consistent, Lord. We thank you that in your presence, uh, truly, we find refuge and peace and joy and everything that we need, God. Father, I pray that you would just give us a deeper confidence in who you are today, uh, just a deeper understanding of the blessing that we find in your presence, God, and We just ask that you would be at work in our hearts, Lord. We are often distracted. Lord, I am often distracted, uh, looking always at other things to fulfill me, God. Uh, We we ask, Lord, that you would please speak to our hearts. Would you please be among us, Lord? Help us to love you and know you and worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning we're in another psalm uh, that David wrote while he was facing persecution. So David wrote this psalm uh, while he was running away from Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel, and God had ultimately rejected Saul because Saul was not a man after his own heart. Um, Saul cared about his kingdom, not not God's kingdom. So uh, David, of course, is facing an incredibly trying time as he's running away from Saul and his armies. Um, this is really like the, the valley of the shadow of death for him. This is, this is a time of suffering, hardship, 
and persecution. And just so we can have a, a clearer, hopefully a clearer understanding of where this psalm fits into the context of David's life, I just want to quickly recap the timeline so far, the timeline of David's life. So we all know that David shows up uh, onto the scene. He's introduced to the public when he defeats Goliath, right? He's a young man, and he de- defeats Goliath with a sling and a stone, and then he cuts off of his head. He cuts off his head. Uh, Saul, of course, takes notice of the bravery of this young man and wants to bring him into his household as a servant. So David serves Saul and his household faithfully, yet Saul still turns on David. Saul becomes jealous of David uh, because the people like David more. So Saul is insecure, he's jealous, and so he turns on David to the point where even, he even seeks after David's life. He's trying to kill David. He's putting all his resources in, into capturing and killing David. So naturally, David is going to run away. He runs away from, that, from Saul's household, and after that, he gets captured by the Philistines, which were the enemies of Israel. So he's captured. Uh, we took a look at that situation last week in the psalm that he wrote when he was in Philistine captivity. He escapes from the Philistines and then flees into the wilderness of En Gedi, to the caves of En Gedi. Uh, so a little illustration for you from the Action Bible of the setting all right, a, wa- a rocky wilderness, lots of caves around, uh, and we can see that David here is hiding out in caves. He's desperately praying to the Lord uh, to redeem him from this situation. And that is because at this point, right, like I mentioned before, Saul comes after David with his whole army. So a whole army after this one man. And David spends a few chapters running around, hiding out in this wilderness to evade this army. This is the context in which Psalm 27 was written. David writes this psalm with this context of fleeing persecution in mind. In verse 2, David describes his enemy. He says, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, right? He's describing them as like being cannibalistic. So this is an incredibly violent enemy that's after him. Verse 3, though an army encamp against me. David's not being hyperbolic, right? There's actually an army that is after him. Verse 12, give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. So David describes just being constantly surrounded by violent opposition. He's facing constant persecution, but David finds refuge. He finds refuge in the presence of the Lord. Let's think for a minute. Let's think about what he's saying. Think about what he's describing in the psalm. David's describing this extreme kind of persecution. A whole army is after his life. And so the threat is constant and the stress is is constant. So he asks the Lord for help. He asks the Lord to do something for him in this trying, stressful time. In verse 4, he says, one thing have I asked, 
that I will seek after. Now, what would you expect to see right here at this point? If there's enemies all around David, you'd expect him to ask for deliverance from his enemies. You'd expect him to say, God, please save me from my circumstances. Remove this time of trial and persecution. Make this suffering come to an end. God, please defeat my enemies and change my circumstances. That's what you'd expect. But that's not what David asks for, is it? No, David's one thing, his one desire, even in the midst of persecution, is to dwell in the presence of the Lord. One thing have I asked for that I will seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty and to inquire in his temple. David's one desire, the thing that he treasured the most out of all the things in this life was the presence of the Lord. And that's because David knew that if he had God, then he had everything. Our main idea this morning pretty much comes straight out of the text. To dwell in the presence of the Lord is the one thing that is more valuable than anything else. To dwell in the presence of the Lord is the one thing that is more valuable than anything else in the world. And what I hope we see this morning from the psalm is that in God's presence, we'll find these three things, these major things. In God's presence, there is everlasting security, everlasting satisfaction, and everlasting salvation. In the psalm, of course, these things are woven together, right? There's a lot of overlap between these categories, but these are the three major themes that David highlights in the psalm. So, moving on to point number one here. In verse one, David opens up the psalm with two really incredible rhetorical questions. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold. Of whom shall I be afraid? Okay, this verse corresponds with the end of the psalm. The end of the psalm, verses 13 and 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So the whole psalm is wrapped in this idea that God's presence provides security. It's like a security sandwich. True security, the true security found in God's presence was the basis for David's confidence. What we see in verse at the beginning of the psalm and what we see at the end of the psalm. And remember, David is here in this situation hiding out in caves. He's surrounded by violent enemies. And yet whom shall he fear? No one. There is not a single threat that the Lord cannot overcome. 
There is no darkness that can quench his light. There is no circumstance that can keep him from saving. There is no single obstacle that he cannot overcome. No one and nothing can challenge his power. Not even sin and death. David knew that if he was with the Lord, then nothing could ultimately harm him. His life was in God's hand. In the presence of the Lord, there is everlasting security. And just like we saw last week, how David really seriously took uh, a personal relationship with the Lord, we see the same thing here in this psalm. When he's talking about God here in verse 1, he uses God's personal covenant name. So he calls, he says, Yahweh. He says, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Okay, Yahweh, that's the, the personal name that God revealed to his people when he made a covenant with them and redeemed them. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Yahweh is my stronghold. God personally was the strength that David took hold of. Not like an abstract idea of God, not some God in general, David's confidence wasn't based off of the fact that he was an Israelite or because he grew up in this place with these parents. No, David's confidence came from the fact that God was his, his light, his salvation, his stronghold. David knew the security found in Yahweh's presence because he had a personal relationship with him. Church, we can be absolutely confident that in God's presence there is eternal security. Now, this doesn't mean that we're uh, insulated from every kind of hardship, right? We're not spared from every bad thing that happens. But the truth is that God is a perfectly good perfectly sovereign king who rules and governs all things. So ultimately, there is no harm that can befall you unless God in his perfect wisdom and goodness has allowed it. It's just like Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, I know this sort of thing can be hard to wrap your mind and your heart around because bad stuff happens to God's people all the time. You don't have to be alive that long to understand that reality. But again, I'll point you to Jesus. Was Jesus a good person? He was the only good person that has ever walked on the face of this planet. Was Jesus close to the Father? Of course, he was closer than anyone. Did Jesus suffer? Jesus faced the worst kind of suffering. 
Yet Jesus had a different perspective. Jesus knew that God had prepared something better for him. The book of Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus had an eternal perspective. And the Bible invites us, it challenges us to consider this eternal perspective. Paul makes the point really strongly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is coming from Paul. Paul who was shipwrecked. Paul who was imprisoned wrongly multiple times, who was beaten several times, who was stoned Like people thought he had died from being stoned. So uh, he was seriously mistreated and abused. At the end of his life, he was beheaded for his faith. And he calls this life of suffering, this valley of tears, he says it's a light, momentary affliction in comparison to the glory that is awaiting us. In the first few centuries after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so in the early, early years of the church, Christianity exploded. It it spread all across the Roman Empire. And of course, with that, we know there was a great deal of persecution. I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with the the way that Nero persecuted the Christians, but a lot of Nero's successors persecuted Christians with the, the same kind of zeal, and violence. Roman persecution was aggressive and it was ruthless. And there's one example in particular that really illustrates, that shows us how ruthless and aggressive they were. There was uh, a woman, a Christian martyr named Blandina. Um, She lived late in the second century and endured the persecution that happened to Christians under the reign of Marcus Aurelius. Uh, so oftentimes Christians would be brought into gladiator arenas and get, you know, people would watch them get torn apart by animals. Blandina was about 17 years old when she became a martyr, uh, when she died for her faith. She was a slave girl her whole life, and she was a Christian who refused to turn her back on Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read to you just a, a quick excerpt from Um, Eusebius of Caesarea, his record of church history, he recounts the final hours of her life. On the last day of the show of the gladiators, Blandina was again brought forth together with Ponticus, a youth of about 15 years old. These were brought in every day to see the tortures of the rest When they continued firm and denied the Roman idols, the multitude became outrageous at them, so that they neither had compassion for the youth of the boy nor regard for the sex of the woman. Hence, they subjected them to every horrible suffering. They led them through the whole round of torture, striving to force them to swear by their idols, but they were unable to effect it. Ponticus, indeed, encouraged by his sister, 
so that the heathen could see that she was encouraging and confirming him, nobly bore the whole of these sufferings and gave up his life. But the blessed Blandina, last of all, as a noble mother that had encouraged her children and sent them as visitors to, victors to the great king, hastened at last with joy and exaltation to the suffering of her ordeal, as if she were invited to a marriage feast and not to be cast to wild beasts. And thus after scourging and exposure to the beasts, after roasting, she was finally thrown into a net and cast before a bull. And when she had been well tossed by the animal and now had no longer any sense of what was being done to her, by reason of her firm hope, confidence, faith, and her communion with Christ, she too was dispatched. Even the Gentiles confessed that no woman among them had ever endured sufferings as many and as great as these. Blandina stared down suffering and death with joy, as if she was going to a wedding feast, because she knew that if she had the Lord, that meant she had everything. I share this with you because I want us to see that David is not just giving us some idealized hope. This is not wishful thinking on his part. But the presence of the Lord truly makes a difference. Though we may perish, there is ultimately nothing to fear. There are so many examples of Christians throughout history that knew this truth to their core. And despite their circumstances, they knew that in God's presence, there is everlasting, eternal security. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? In God's presence, we not only find security, but we also find eternal satisfaction. So here we're getting into point number two. Again, it's incredible to think about what David asks for in verse four. He says, one thing have I asked that I will seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Despite the danger around him, despite the persecution he faces, David doesn't ask for deliverance from his enemies. He asks for God's presence. The context of this psalm shows us just how valuable the presence of the Lord is. To be with God is better than comfort. It is better than success. It is better than overcoming your obstacles and your enemies. God's presence is even better than relief from suffering. To be close to the Lord is the one thing that is more valuable than anything else. In this series, we're going through the life of David, right? So because of that, we're able to observe the kind of king that God provides, the kind of king he chooses to rule over his people. 
If you think back to earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, God says uh, that he is choosing a man after his own heart to be king. And what we see here in this psalm is that David's desire for God's presence is something that makes him unique as the king that God chooses. David's desire for God's presence is what made him unique as the king that God provides. This becomes especially clear as we observe the contrast between Saul and David. So Saul, his one desire, the one thing that he wanted more than anything else, was to hold on to the kingdom. Saul wanted power. But for David, it's a different story. For David, his one desire for was, was for God's presence. And that is what set him apart as the king that God chooses. David wanted to spend time in the house of the Lord. So here I have an illustration of the tabernacle from another kid's book. Um, so here we see just a picture of the tabernacle as the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness. And the tabernacle was what we would call God's house in the Old Testament. It is where God's presence dwelt in a special personal kind of way. So David's desire was to be here at this place. And he wanted to be here, not because he was insecure about his salvation and he felt like he needed to make sacrifices all the time. Okay, he didn't want to be here because it made him look good in front of the people. No, the only reason he wanted to be here is because God was here in a special, personal way. The king that God has chosen has a priority, and his priority is to dwell in the house of the Lord. Is that making sense to everyone? Good. Because in Luke chapter 2, the boy Jesus causes a great deal of stress for his parents because he stays back in the house of the Lord as his parents leave for home. Okay, they were gone for three days before they realized he was missing. Okay, gives us hope as parents right there. So they were searching for him. They come back to the temple of the Lord. And, and when they see Jesus, here's what they say to him. This is what Luke records. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? When we read the Gospel of Luke, we're not supposed to like read this story and think it's just some random account of Jesus' childhood. No, we're meant to see a connection. We're meant to see that Jesus is the king who prioritizes dwelling in God's presence. We're meant to see that this child, he is the one that is like David. He is the true son of David. He is the one who truly seeks the presence of the Lord 
And therefore, he's the one who will truly deliver God's people and bring them into the eternal promised land. Our Savior knew, he knew that there is eternal satisfaction in God's presence. And he knew that that was the one thing to seek above all other things. But Jesus doesn't just give us an example of this truth being lived out. He actually leads us to see this truth for ourselves. I can think of my testimony when I think about this. Uh, I was saved at the age of 16 here on Okinawa through a uh, youth ministry run by Cadence. Um, Now, prior to this, I had lived in the United States my whole life. Um, Up until the summer going into my sophomore year in high school. And as a teenage boy, I was pursuing all and chasing after all the things that typical teenage boys chase after. So I arrive here in Okinawa. Um, I'm going to a small Christian school now. Okay, so it's nothing like the, the public schools I was going to. And I have zero context for Christianity because... Uh, I came from a secular home. Uh, we, you know, we didn't really talk to it. We might have gone to like a uh, candlelight service Christmas Eve one or two times, but I really had no understanding for Christianity. Um, so I get to this Christian school in Okinawa, and I hear a couple of chapel messages that basically go like, you know, the, essentially the message is that hell is not a place that you you want to be. So. Try not to go there and believe in Jesus. Um, It wasn't until I got to this retreat that I was able to experience and see for myself the goodness and joy found in God's presence. You see, it wasn't a fear of hell that saved me. It wasn't a desire to be virtuous or a desire for acceptance, or community, as good as community is. No, it was the pure joy that I found in God's presence. I was trying to fill my life with all sorts of things. Alcohol, parties, relationships. I was just a run-of-the-mill heathen. I wanted all the things that the world was telling me would make me happy. But when I met Jesus, when I experienced the goodness of his presence, I was able to see for myself that nothing else compares. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says, God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You know, so often we try to fill our lives and we try to fill our souls with more of the same things that have let us down in the past. More money, more relationships, more work, more entertainment, more distraction. And we can try to accumulate as much of that as we possibly can. But what we will never be able to fill is the eternity that God has put into our hearts. Only an infinite God can fill, fulfill an eternal longing. Who here has seen The Matrix, the movie? 
Yeah, great. A lot of you. I think this is one of my favorite movies. This is the original John Wick to me. Um, so we have the main character, Neo, played by Keanu Reeves. And in this movie, right, he's trying to escape the Matrix, which is a digital alternate reality that everyone's brain is plugged into. And so to escape, he's got to take a red pill. But before he's able to do that, another character named Trinity takes him on a drive. And at this point, Neo's frustrated. He's fed up. He's about to get out of the car. But Trinity asks Neo to trust her. He's about to lose his opportunity to escape the Matrix, but Trinity asks Neo to trust her. Why? Neo responds. She answers, because you've been down that road, Neo. You know that road. You know exactly where it ends. And I know that you don't want to be there. Now there's some wisdom in that line. Because we can try to fill our, our souls and fix our problems with the same transient things of this world. All the money, all the relationships, all the prestige, all the entertainment, we can try to fill our lives and our souls with those things, but it will be impossible. We can try those same solutions again and again. We can look to those same things again and again. But you've been down that road. You know exactly where it ends. And you know that you don't want to be there. No matter how much you have, if you don't have the Lord, your soul will be left empty. And yet, if you have the Lord, even if you have nothing else, not a penny to your name or a place to lay down your head, then you will be rich beyond your wildest dreams. You will have everything. In verses 5 and following, David expands on the gift of God's presence. And here we're getting into our third point. David talks about taking refuge in God's shelter and his tent in verse 5. And again, he's highlighting what this highlights is the place where God is, the place where God is present. What we see here is that in addition to security and satisfaction, we also find eternal salvation in the Lord's presence. David writes, He will conceal me under his tent, hide me in his shelter. The result of this is in verse 6, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies. David understands that the presence of the Lord will lead to true salvation, not just a feeling of security. Now, imagery here is, is interesting. David said that he doesn't say, I'm going to lift up my head. Now I'm going to lift up my head. No, David here is passive. His head will be lifted up by the Lord. And the point is that we don't save ourselves. It is God who does the saving. David, even with all of his strong faith and confidence, did not save himself. We are passive in salvation. We are recipients 
of God's grace. All that we can do is hold out an empty hand. Christianity is not self-help. It's not 10 steps to a better future. No, Christianity is the understanding that we are in desperate need of someone to do something for us that we never could have done for ourselves. We need God to save us, not show us how we might be able to save ourselves. Salvation is found in God's presence. It belongs to him alone. Psalm 27 makes that very clear. But to to me, here's what's so comforting. God is also faithful to bring us into his presence. He's faithful to give us access to his presence. By nature, we are sinners. We're children of wrath who have no right to come into the presence of the Lord. We have no right to come into his presence and enjoy all the blessings that are found there. Yet God is faithful to give us himself. In verses 9 through 10, David says, Even if my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. God's faithfulness is beyond anything that we can comprehend. It's beyond even the faithfulness of a parent to receive their child. God's commitment to bring us into his presence goes so far that in the counsel of his perfect will, he would even give his own son so that we could have access to him. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of Jesus, our faithful high priest, who died to remove our sins and give us his perfect righteousness, we can now draw near to the throne of God's grace with confidence. As we're ending here this morning, we've been taking some time every sermon to think about some of the parallels between David and Jesus. And hopefully we've been able to see that there are quite a lot of parallels Today, hopefully the one that stands out to you is that Jesus, in a far greater way than David, is the true king who pursues dwelling in the presence of his father. But in this psalm, we also see another parallel very clearly. And that is the parallel between Jesus and the God of Israel. In Psalm 27, David calls Yahweh the God of Israel, his light. And of course, we all know that in John chapter 8, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. In Psalm 27, David says that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is my salvation. In the Gospel of Luke, when the boy Jesus is in the temple, a prophet named Simeon approaches him and his family. And when he sees Jesus... He exclaims, Thank you, Lord, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Psalm 27 speaks of dwelling in God's presence. It speaks of the dwelling of God. 
In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says that in Jesus Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is truly the place where God is present. And of course, we know that Jesus himself says in John 9, uh, chapter 14, verse 9, he says that if you have seen me, then you have seen the Father. You see, it is in the presence of Jesus, in the light of his face, that we find the eternal security, satisfaction, and salvation that are only found in the presence of God. So that means that Jesus can't just be a good teacher. We can't fairly evaluate the Bible and come to that conclusion. Jesus can't just be a good moral example, one way among many, because he's not making that claim. No, he's making the claim that his presence is the very presence of God. How comforting then is it to hear him say, I will be with you always even to the end of the age. I'll leave you with the question that Jesus poses to his disciples in the Gospels. He asked them, who do the people say that I am? And they respond, well, some say that you're Elijah. Others say that you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Others say that you're one of the prophets. So Jesus asks, but who do you say that I am? As we read Psalm 27 in light of the New Testament, the answer is clear. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the Christ. He is the one who was there before the beginning of time, loving the Father and the Spirit. He is the one who created this universe by the word of his power and who upholds it now by his gracious will. He is the one who has conquered the grave and leads us into life everlasting. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the only one in whose presence we find everlasting security, satisfaction, and salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you. God, because it is good to know you, it is good to belong to you, it is good to be called your children. Thank you for the access to your presence, to your dwelling place that you have provided through the sacrifice of your son. Lord, I pray that our lives would just reflect an unending gratitude for what you have done for us. God, for the joy and security and salvation that you provide for us as you shelter us in your presence, in your dwelling place. Father, we love you. Please soften our hearts. Please speak to our hearts through your spirit that we may know you and love you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.